We're continuing our sermon series on being disciple makers, both in terms of our prayer and our practice. And I handed out to you little cards that is a disciple maker's prayer, and there's still some of them left in the back, I believe, if you didn't get one and would like to have one. Uh, But we've basically been emphasizing the great commission that we were given. And that commission found in Matthew 28 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, or lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. Again, I want to emphasize that the command is not to go. That's a participle. The command is to make disciples and to do it by baptizing and teaching. So if I was going to translate this verse from the original Greek into English, my translation would be something like this. As you are going into all the world, I commission or I command you to make disciples. So far as we've developed the sermon series focused on being disciple makers, uh, after we introduced the series by describing the difference between the use of the participles and the one command, uh, the imperative that Jesus used, two weeks ago I talked about how uh, the Lord's Prayer, not the model prayer, the model prayer is Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The one we that's the model prayer. That's the prayer Jesus gave them when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, Well, pray like this. But the actual prayer of the Lord, his pastoral prayer, his priestly prayer on our behalf, is found in John 17. And in that prayer, we saw how on the night that Jesus was betrayed, his prayer was not for us to be taken out of the world. His prayer was not even for us to remove ourselves from the world. But His prayer was that as we are going about in the world, we would be protected from the evil one. No. We need to understand that we're not going to be protected from evil. Tribulations trials are going to take place. In fact, the New Testament is pretty clear. The more we live in line with what the Scriptures teach, the more we can expect persecution. Jesus said, the world hates me. Why won't it hate you if you're my disciples, if you're followers of me? And that's why he prayed that we would be protected from the evil one as we go on our way. And then last Sunday we looked at Mark 3 where Jesus calls the 12. And we we noted how Jesus went up on a mountain which was very common for those who were seeking the presence of God. It was on the mountain, if you'll recall, that Moses had that first encounter with the burning bush and where he took the people back to as they received the Ten Commandments. 
And Jesus there, as He called those twelve, it says that He authorized them and called them for two things. To be with Him, but also to be sent out to proclaim the good news. And to bring freedom to those who were incarcerated in one way or another. Whether it was the incarceration, uh, literal incarceration of being imprisoned. He said, you know, I was in prison and you didn't visit me. Or I was and you did visit me. Or the imprisonment of, of disease or illness or addictions. Our job is to go out and, and to, to share the love of God so that those things that bind us can be overcome. Today I want to move one step further and I want to look at how the teaching of Scripture is that you and I are not to be divided, but united. Now, in that Disciple Maker's Prayer that I've handed out, the line that I want to focus on today is when it says, By your word and spirit, transform me into a follower of Jesus who loves you, loves people, and make disciples, makes disciples, who make more disciples ad infinitum, to infinity and beyond. Again, Notice both the vertical dimension, I mean, and the horizontal dimension. It begins with what is primary, our love for God and our love for Jesus, God the Son. And we're to love with the totality of our being, all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Those aren't synonyms. Those make up, especially in the Jewish understanding of the, of the body, those make up the totality of who we are. But then also, it says, not only a follower who loves you, but who loves people. We're told to love others, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, that's what Jesus said is the second commandment, and like the first. Now, if we think about it, that kind of love for God and for neighbor should compel us to make disciples. And to make disciples who realize the importance of making disciples. Let's think about this mathematically for just a second. I'm sorry, I think in mathematical terms. If I spent three hours a day this week contacting three people each day for the seven days. That would be 21 contacts. If each of you contacted one person each day, and there's over 20 of us here, that's 20 a day for seven days. That's 140 contacts. The ministry is a ministry of all believers. We are all ministers. And we are all called to be sharing the good news and to be helping others to be released from their bondage. Christianity is not primarily 
about information. Packing our minds with all of the right details. There's not a single judgment passage that talks about a test about what we know. You understand that? The only one that comes close to it is that those who are identified as Christians are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died and was resurrected. Very minimal in terms of the beliefs that that are a part of that uh, statement in the Scriptures. But more than once, it talks about judgment in terms of what we are doing. Feeding the hungry, giving a drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting the imprisoned. We show what we believe by what we are doing. And it's not about information as much as it is it, though that's important, it's important to know God's Word. It's about transformation. It's far more relational than we in the Western world are accustomed to. It's not about changing our thinking. It's about changing our way of life. And so, that's why. If you've noticed, and I hope you have, I mean, I'm in my sixth year here now. We do have an invitation in. And the invitation in is an opportunity for those who want to confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior to come down front. Or those who want to say, I've been worshiping here and I want to bring my membership here to come down front. And to let the congregation know, let the witnesses know that that is their decision and to make that great confession. And we sing an invitation hymn. But I'm not one of those who sings 20 verses, oh, let's sing it one more time, to the point that people are almost starting to pass out and somebody's starting to elbow somebody saying, would you please go down front so we can end this? (laughs) Because it's not primarily about our emotions. It's about understanding that we need to make a change of life. A commitment to Jesus as our Lord, not just as our Savior. Now, to help us with that, I want you to to see an image. Our prayer begins, by your word and spirit, transform me. That great passage in Romans. To be transformed by the universe, the, by the by the renewal of our minds, it's the word metamorphosis. What a caterpillar does to become a butterfly, and that's not easy work. And that's why we cannot and are not expected to do it on our own. So the image that I want to present to you today is that of a three-chord strand. And you're probably familiar with the verse that's here. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 12. We need to come together. We need people who are accountability partners who we can call and they can call us. And the conversation can be simply, 
How are you doing today? What temptations are you facing today? And we can give them strength and encourage them and motivate them. And then they can do the same with us so that we can confess and get the strength we need as we come together and bond ourselves together to get that strength. My text for this morning is actually from Paul's first letter to the Christians at Thessalonica. I've often referred to a biblical scholar, conservative scholar by the name of John Stott. He's referred to chapter 4 as the watershed of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. In fact, he points out how there's an abrupt change between chapters 3 and 4. So far in chapters 1 to 3 of 1 Thessalonians, he had been going back, looking back to his visit and the events that followed that visit. He had been defending himself against his critics' accusations. But now in chapters 4 and 5, he looks both to the present and the future of the Thessalonian church. He addresses himself to certain practical problems, practical problems concerning Christian conduct that were evidently troubling them. And by doing this, he turns from what is basically historical narrative to some exhortation as to how they are to be living. So let's look at his text. Finally, then brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Finally, we ask and urge. And what is it that he requests or that he urges? Other than it's to walk in such a manner that will please God. Now I hope you realize that he's not talking about the way we put one foot in front of the other as we move about. He's talking about how we live our lives each and every day. One of the great weaknesses of contemporary conservative Christianity, which we are a part of, is our comparative neglect to the issue of Christian ethics. That is, the neglect of the beliefs and the principles that are directly related to our decisions regarding everyday behavior. One consequence of this is that we become known as a people who preach the gospel, but not who live it. And the reality of the matter is, is that we're really not much different. We're not often as conspicuous in the community as we should be. Not in terms of our respect for the sanctity and quality of human life. Not in terms of our commitment to social justice. Not in terms of our personal honesty and integrity in our business practices. Not in terms of our simplicity of lifestyle and happy contentment. All of that in sharp contrast to the greed of the consumer society in which we live. We're not known, we're really not known for the stability of our homes. 
Unfortunately, the statistics regarding divorce and infidelity are not any different from the, those statistics in the world. And so our children struggle as much as the children of others to grow up in the secure love of their parents. You want to experience that firsthand? Come and spend the majority of the summer at the camp working with and dealing with children who predominantly are coming from church-going families. They're struggling. And I truly believe that one of the main reasons for this lack of directness or distinctiveness, excuse me, is that our churches do not, as a whole, teach the importance of good, solid Christian decision making. We're so afraid of being branded as legalists that we often neglect the clear biblical instructions. Yes, the commands as to what we should and shouldn't be doing. Now, we're not saved by our works. Are those people who say, well, we're not under the law, as they piously say, as if it's okay to ignore and even disobey the commands. No. As Christians, we're still under obligation to keep God's moral law and His commandments. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Fulfill it. The purpose of Christ's death was so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit's dwelling in our heart is so that God's law might be written there. Not primarily in our minds, but written in our hearts. The location of our decisions. That's how they understood the cardia, the guts. That's where you got the courage, the motivation to do something. Not through rationally thinking whether or not this is the right thing to do, but that instinct, that feeling, that drive that came from a person's heart. I think that in contrast to our current neglect of teaching the importance of right living, Paul presents a striking contrast. It's not just that his letters are usually divided into two halves, the first concentrating on doctrine and the second on the ethical application or the behavior, and, that, and that's true of all of his letters, by the way but also that he gives detailed instruction on Christian moral behavior, even to very young converts. And the apostolic tradition that he says he passes on, which they had received, included both the truth of the gospel, and that can be seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, chapter 2, verse 2, chapter verse 8 and verse 13, but it's also moral instruction on how to live in order to please God, which we see here in these first two verses. Now, if time allowed, I could make several points in favor of the importance of pleasing God as a guiding principle for all of our behavior as Christians. But let me just suggest that it's really a radical concept that strikes right at the roots of our discipleship and challenges the reality of our verbal profession of faith. 
How can we say with our mouths? How can we profess? How can we claim to know God and to love God if we don't seek to please God with all that we do with our lives? You see, disobedience is ruled out. What did the Great Commission say? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And so Paul continues by telling us that pleasing God involves controlling ourselves. Verses 3 to 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God that you are separated, that you are distinct, that you are different. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body. In holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. The instruction involves controlling ourselves. And it really shouldn't be surprising that Paul begins with human sexuality, not only because it's the most domineering, the most demanding of our human urges, but also because of the laxity, even promiscuity, of that Greco-Roman world in which he was living and moving about. In fact, he was writing from Corinth to Thessalonica. Both cities were infamous for their immorality. And Thessalonica was particularly associated with the worship of deities called the Kabiri, and whose rites gross immorality was promoted under the name of religion. Widely accepted that men either could not or would not limit themselves to being a one-woman man. As Paul instructs, by the way, to Timothy regarding the leadership of the church. It wasn't about polygamy. It wasn't about divorce and remarriage. It was about whether even those who were married to one woman could remain faithful to that woman and be a one-woman man. And sadly, in many cultures and countries today, even where monogamy is officially favored, sorry, deviations from that norm are increasingly tolerated. Paul develops his instruction in verses 3 and 4 in three stages. First, he says in a very general and positive way that God's will is for us to be sanctified, to be holy. We are to be different. We are to be set aside. And the word there can either refer to a process or more often the result of that process, to be holy. Now, if this did not have felt in the bottom of it, because it's like a bowl, I could put vegetable in it and put it on a serving tray. But we have chosen to set this apart 
as something special for the reception of our offerings to God. And so because it's set apart, it is sanctified. It is holy. Not that it can't be touched and used for something else, but during that time when it's taking up the offering, it is being used in a holy way. Holy doesn't mean you and I sit around staring at our belly buttons, humming, and trying to not do anything so that we remain totally different from everything else. It means that we are willing to not be like our neighbors. To not be forced to dress like our neighbors. To not be forced by peer pressure or mentality to behave like our neighbors. And, and you know, that's hard. It's hard to get out of the rat race of not keeping up with the Joneses. Oh, wow, look, they got a new car. Look what they did to their house. Or, wow, look at the flowers they have out in their yard. We don't have those flowers in our yard. You know, it, can, it can be even little trivial things. We need to realize that we need to be separated. We need to be different. We need to be set aside. And next, he specifies within God's general and positive will a particular pro prohibition that we should avoid immorality. But avoid is really not a strong enough word. What he's talking about is that we are to make a clean cut with impurity. A total abstinence. I. Howard Marshall, in his commentary, rightly comments, where things are evil, the Christian attitude is necessarily one of abstention and not one of moderation. Unfortunately, Paul's concern was more than just a matter of morality. When he continues by speaking about transgressing and wronging our brothers, he's talking about things that would threaten the very existence of the community in at least two ways. It could lead to a breakdown of the discipline that served as a part of the group boundary, separating the Christians from paganism. And secondly, it would destroy the carefully cultivated sense of kinship among members of the community. When I was little, we never referred to an adult by their first name alone. If we used their first name, it always had a prefix. We always said, Sister Pat, Brother Ray, Sister Diane. It was an issue of respect. It was an issue of that re relational thing that comes as a part of being what we talk about as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I know too many of us are familiar with all of the constant sibling rival rivalries and bickerings that go on. But that shouldn't be a part of the church. In fact, nothing hurts the cause of Christ any more than bickering and fighting in the church. Nothing hurts the cause of Christ any more than Christians being divided. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
I don't think I need to go into specific examples with you of how many times in the six years that I've been here I have gone around and tried to talk to people about the church and heard the words, oh, I used to go there, but I left. And naming one of those conflicts, one of those nasty things that were said, one of those divisive actions that were taken by members of the church against their own brothers and sisters in Christ. And why do we have any question about why our numbers have dwindled so much? This is probably the best explanation, in fact, for the strong language that Paul uses in the second part of the verse there when he places a severe sanction against any deviation from the acceptable Christian behavior. The actual sanction that Paul employs is the most powerful one he had available to you. He tells his readers that the Lord is an avenger. He is a punisher in all matters just mentioned by him. Now notice how verse 9 begins. Now concerning. For those of you that have been a part of my Bible studies on Wednesday night, you should be aware, even though this is in Greek, of an unusual construction there. Perry Day takes Philadelphia. Perry Day. What I share with you that I always means in the scriptures? an abrupt, significant change again in the emphasis. And in this case, it's about the Philadelphias. What is Philadelphia known as? The city of brotherhood of Because that's what that word means. Now concerning brotherly love. You had no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Second time that that phrase more and more has come up. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Paul moves on in this section. Just a bit, though not the overall emphasis. And he does it by moving from chastity to charity, from self-control in our relationships to the importance of work, from the need to help the weak to the need to warn those who are idols, which we'll come to in chapter 5. But did you notice the main concern? The focus of this shift, as indicated by his use of that construction Perry Day, now concerning, was that the teaching of God is that we're to be united. <coughs> To, unite, to be united by loving one another. And from his general teaching about brotherly love, Paul goes on to the particular manifestations of it, which he sees to be missing. Did you notice that he addresses three admonitions? 
The first is this. Make your ambition to lead a quiet life. First part of verse 11. Now this is a striking oxymoron, really. Because in the Greek, and I, and I know you don't know Greek, and I'm not expecting you to know Greek, even though um, we talk about how much better our education is. You know that during the founding of our nation, in the grammar schools, they taught both Latin and Greek for the grammar students. Uh, but anyway, uh, in the Greek, it's really make it your ambition to have no ambition. Same word is used twice. You see, the idleness of the Thessalonians was apparently accompanied by some kind of feverish excitement. And Paul wanted them to dampen that down. And as their second ambition, they were to mind their own business. Paul would write in his second letter, do that because they were not busy with their own business. They had become busy bodies. 2 Thessalonians 3. Meddling in other people's matters. Thirdly, he says they were to work with their own hands just as Paul had told them when he was with them. You see, the Greeks despised manual labor. They thought it was degrading to free men. It was only fit for the slaves. But Christianity came into direct collision with that. Paul himself worked with his hands as a tent maker as he was also preaching and proclaiming the Word of God. <coughs> Quiet, non-interfering, hard-working, not to be dependent on anybody. Now we can take that to an extreme that's not healthy either. We are told in Scriptures that when we have a need, we are to share that with our brothers and sisters. Because they might have a surplus where we have a need, and we might have a surplus where they have a need. But all of this is to be done basically for two reasons. One was so that their daily life would respect would gain respect by the outsiders, verse 12, first part. And secondly, he says, so that they wouldn't be dependent on anybody, but would rather enjoy an honorable independence. I've told my wife, and my kids, I personally, this is just me, I'm not putting this on anybody else. I personally would not be able to use food stamps or those kinds of things. And I know it's a problem of pride. But I would rather spend 12 to 16 hours a day out picking up cans and turning them in or doing any kind of odd job that anybody would have to gain money to meet my needs than to accept handouts. Now, I don't think Paul is saying it needs to go to that extreme at all. I am sharing that I know that that is an issue of a problem of pride with me, but 
He does say we are to do our best not to be dependent on anyone else. So, in our text for today, Paul has addressed himself to two areas of everyday human experience. And he gives us a Christian perspective from which to view them. The first is basically a call to unselfishness. We're to please God and to love another, verse 1 and verse 9. Christian morality is not primarily about rules and regulations, but about relationships. And on the one hand, the more we know and love God, the more we should want to please Him. Children quickly learn what pleases or displeases their parents. And so sometimes they'll do something and they'll come with a big smile on their face and they'll say, I did this. They're reaching out for that acceptance, that approval, that affirmation, that confirmation. And we're to develop a spiritual sensitivity towards God through His Word and His Spirit until every dilemma that we face becomes safe and practical to ask ourselves, would doing this or responding in this way please God? Would it please God for me to be saying these things? Would it please God for me to be treating others in this way? Whatever we wish others would do for us, we should want to do for them. Kind of a restatement of the golden rule. You see, I think it's a wonderfully liberating experience when the desire to please God overtakes our desire to please ourselves. My kids bought me a pair of shoes a while back because they noticed that the ones I was wearing at that time were absolutely worn out. But it's hard. It's hard to spend money on ourselves when we see our kids with things, not that they want necessarily, but when we see things that they need. I remember my dad telling the story of his father, my grandfather, who one day his, grand, his dad asked him to go get his shoes. And when he got them and picked them up, a piece of cardboard fell out. And he held them up and you could look right through the hole in the sole of his shoe. <coughs> and he did not get his shoes even resold because the money was needed for other more important things than himself. We're called to be unselfish. And true freedom is not freedom from responsibility to God and others in order to live for ourselves, but freedom from ourselves in order to live for God and others. Secondly, Paul issues a call to growth. I emphasize the fact that a phrase was used more than once. Remember what that phrase was? more and more. We're to please God more and more, verse 1. And we're to love one another more and more, verse 10. We can never, as Christians, become complacent with the way we are doing. That's a horrid condition. 
In this life, we never finally arrive. We have to always be pressing on toward the goal. So here's my challenge this morning. We need to be demonstrating our unity by our love. By our love. And I don't think any passage emphasizes that any more than the one Jesse used this morning for our call to worship. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Paul begins by saying, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy, in other words, sanctified, and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against somebody else, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And then after saying all of that, if that wasn't enough, he writes, and above all these, put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that's my challenge for us this morning. To live that kind of a life of love. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us when we have allowed our pettiness to pick and poke at others instead of helping do what we can to improve the situation or to help them make the changes needed. Help us when we have focused on ourselves more than on the needs of others. And help us, certainly, to put on love that binds all things together. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing.